You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. All right, well, good morning, everyone. And... Uh, It is good to be here with you this morning. Please turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. Gospel of John, chapter 2. And uh, he stepped out here, I guess. I was going to say thanks very much to Dan for preaching last week. I uh, appreciate being able to spend the time at camp with my family. It's good to be back here today. And uh, this is from a news story that was published back in 2010. Okay? News story published back in 2010. Meet Angeles Duran. According to her and her lawyers, the son has been legally registered as hers. And she wants to charge everyone for using the star. There's a, she says, there's an international agreement which states that no country may claim ownership of a planet or star, but it says nothing about individuals. She goes on, I am not stupid. I know the law. I did it, but anyone else could have done it. It simply occurred to me first. The 49-year-old said she claimed ownership after reading about an American man who registered himself as the owner of the moon and most planets in our solar system. She has been issued with a title deed from lawyers in the region of Spain in which she lives that states that she is the owner of the sun, a star of spectral type G2, located in the center of the solar system at an average distance from Earth of about 149 million kilometers. Ms. Duran of Salvaterra de Mino, that's in Spain, plans to charge all users and give half the proceeds to the Spanish government, 20% to the nation's pension fund, 10% to research, and 10% to fighting world hunger. Now, if you're doing the math, you realize there's still 10% unaccounted for. That's going straight into her bank account, she says. I can hear you all getting your checkbooks out right now, ready to pay Ms. Duran for your use of the sun, right? No. Of course you're not going to do that. How many of you actually think that Ms. Duran owns the sun? Yeah, none of us do. None of us believe that. I'd like to see her try to turn off your service due to non-payment. Yeah, that would be fun. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. See what you can do with that. I mean, if she's really the owner, she ought to be able to. Now, that's a silly story, or at least I think it is. But confusion over ownership can actually cause serious problems. Back in 1983, just, I mean, you know, you go through the internet and you scan through the headlines and things. Back in 1983, and I'm sure there's many other instances similar, a Los Angeles man and two of his friends beat a neighbor to death over a dispute about who owned a cat. Tragic and senseless are the two words that come to my mind there. Determining true ownership may sometimes cause difficulty, but it's still important to do so. Whether it's a piece of real estate, a car, or other vehicle, a bank account, or any other item, the true owner has certain rights and privileges in regard to that item that no one else has. And that leads us to our passage today in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. In John chapter 2, starting in verse 13, here we have what is probably the first of two times 
that Jesus cleanses the temple. That's what we call it. We call it cleansing the temple, but we have to define the terms, right? By cleanses, we don't mean that he got out his mop and his bucket and did all the janitorial work there. No, it means that Jesus drove out, he drove out those who were using the temple area and they were using the temple activities as an opportunity to engage in business, probably, or at least possibly, in an unscrupulous way. On the surface, this passage is a simple story And it might seem that devoting much attention to it isn't really worth our time. But I think there's a central issue here that we need to examine. And I think it is something that profoundly affects each one of us today. Because to me, there's a question raised here in this story. And how each one of us answers this question will affect how each of us chooses to live. You think about that for a minute. You wonder, what's the question? Well... The title of today's message is, Whose Temple Is It? Okay, I want you to remember that question. The title of today's message is, Whose Temple Is It? And I hope that each one of us will take that question personally. We'll find out why as we move on here. Let's begin in John chapter 2, verse 13. I was listening to Dan's message last week, from last week. Um, as I was getting ready to put it on the website, I, I review the message in case we need to you know, cut off blank spots here at the beginning or the end or, or just edit the whole thing out or whatever. But um, he, he said in there, uh, he says, I don't put the words on the screen because I want, I want you to look it up in your own Bibles. I don't put the words on the screen so that you won't look it up in your own Bibles. Well, maybe, let me just say that. I guess maybe I never clarified that. This is for convenience. I had you know, people saying, we, we, you go through all these scriptures and we don't know what they all are. Would you put them on the screen? So I just put the whole text. I'd still like you to look it up and read it for yourselves. Uh, you know, that, that's just uh, something I think is good for us all to do. So uh, just because I put them on the screen doesn't mean I don't want you to look them up. That was for Dan's benefit. All right. John chapter 2, starting in verse 13, it says, The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their temples, or at their tables, excuse me. Now, the Gospel of John seems to be structured around some of the significant feasts of the Jews. Passover is mentioned at least three times, possibly four. The Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, same thing, is mentioned once. The Feast of Dedication is also mentioned once. Now, the other three Gospels mention only one Passover, which could lead some to believe that Jesus ministered for only between a year to two years. But John's mention of as many as four Passovers tells us that Jesus' ministry lasted for at least something more than two years and probably for something more than three years. Depending on how long it was between his baptism and this first Passover feast, the period between Jesus calling his first disciples and his ascension into heaven could have been close to three and a half years. And that's the figure that you often hear quoted. Well, this is how they figure that. They look at the Gospel of John, the number of times Passover is mentioned there probably, and they come up with that three and a half year time span. Now, why did Jesus go to Jerusalem? I mean, sure, it's Passover, but hey, you know, Jerusalem's a long way from Galilee. Well, how many of you have heard of the Jewish rite of Bar Mitzvah? You heard of that? Okay, Bar Mitzvah. The expression literally means son of the commandment. It was a ritual in which Jewish boys participated when they turned about 13 usually. From that time on, the young man was committed. Okay, A young man, a young Jewish man who went through Bar Mitzvah was committed to observing the feasts of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles for the rest of his life. 
Jesus kept the law perfectly, so it does not surprise us to find Jesus going up to Jerusalem for the Passover or for any of the other feasts that he observed in Jerusalem. So that's why he was there. Let's talk about the temple situation, though, a little bit. What he went to see there uh, in, uh, or, or what he saw when he, when he came there. So we have to go back a little history there. First of all, we go back to this, and yes, of course, it's not an actual picture. There aren't any, you know that. When God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, he gave them the law of Moses, part of which involved the service of the priests and worship by the people at the tabernacle. That's what this is. And the word tabernacle is another word for tent. And so you see the, the structure there, uh, and it looks like a tent. That's why. It was a tent-like structure that was portable, so the Israelites could take it with them wherever they traveled. They, when they stopped and made camp, they'd set this whole thing up. That was the, uh, uh, the uh, responsibility of one particular group of Levites, I believe. And uh, they'd set this whole thing up, all the walls that are tent, you know, like structures and the poles and the bases and the whole bit. They'd set all that up. And then when they got ready to move on, no matter how long they'd been there or how short they'd been there, when they got ready to move on, they packed it all up and took it with them. Okay, that was the tabernacle. When David became king of Israel, he wanted very much to build a permanent structure in Jerusalem that would replace the tabernacle. He, you know, God, God uh, talking about the Ark of the Covenant, God shouldn't live in the tent was his idea. Uh, but because of David's many wars and the many people he killed in battle, God did not permit David to build the temple. He passed that responsibility on to David's son, Solomon. Now Solomon spent seven and a half years building the temple. And it lasted for almost 400 years until it was destroyed by the Babylonians. And again, this is an artist's conception of what that would look like. And it was, it was magnificent. It was huge. There was gold all over the inside. And the articles that were inside there, the candlesticks and the, the tables for the showbread and the, everything, it was made of gold. And there was this huge bronze, uh, what they call laver or this wash basin outside here, was just huge. Uh, the priests would use that to ceremonially cleanse themselves before they could enter the holy place. Uh, altar of sacrifice out there. I mean, the whole thing. The scale is just incredible, right? But it was destroyed by the Babylonians uh, about 400 years after Solomon uh, built it. So then in 536 B.C., after 50 years of Babylonian captivity, Zerubbabel, there's a name you can't say five times fast, right? Zerubbabel was granted permission by Babylonian authorities to rebuild the temple. It was never as magnificent as Solomon's temple. In fact, the, the scripture says that some people when they were, who had been alive to see Solomon's temple saw Zerubbabel's temple being put together and they cried. Not because the temple was being restored, but because of how plain it was compared to Solomon's temple. But anyway, uh, it was not as magnificent, but it lasted longer. It stayed uh, in existence longer than Solomon's temple, clear until Herod the Great decided to rebuild the temple around 19 or 20 B.C. Now, Herod, Herod the Great, called the king of the Jews, the Herod that was in power when Jesus was born, right? He was not actually a Jew. He was an Idumean or Edomite who was installed as king by the Romans. And the Jews and the Edomites, well, they were historic enemies. So you can figure out how that went over with the Jews. Herod decided to rebuild the temple in an attempt to win the favor of the Jews, as well as to impress the Romans with the importance of Judea. I mean, you know, this huge, glorious temple. Larger, I mean, the, the building itself inside 
This is the temple proper right here. And the building itself inside had the same dimensions as Solomon's temple and Zerubbabel's temple. Those dimensions were set by God uh, uh, in the Old Testament. But the outer part, the courtyards here, and the outer courtyard here, and this whole structure down this side, the huge foundation on which the whole thing sat, I mean, it's just incredible, right? Okay. He expanded the temple complex considerably. The platform on which the temple sat had a circumference of around 5,000 feet. I don't know how they figure that. But anyway, Herod the Great died around 4 B.C. But his planned renovation of the temple continued until the early 60s A.D. It was still in progress as we come to here to John chapter 2. Ironically, the finished project lasted only a few years, maybe six or seven years until the Romans destroyed the temple completely in 70 A.D., and that was it. That was the end of the temple at that time. The area surrounding the temple itself, this is a, a model that has been put together, and so it looks more like an actual photo, but it's still, of course, you know it's not an actual photo of the actual temple. It is a photo. Uh, the area around it, or, or the area on which the whole thing sat, this whole, this whole complex here, uh, consisted of about 19 acres. And I'm not sure how they figured that either, because I was trying to do some figuring, and I came up with a larger number. But anyway, this area was separated into the court of the Gentiles, and I think that's this outer area, this part outside here, not sure. Um, the court of women, the court of Israelites, and the court of priests. And that's in order of how close you are to the temple building itself. The court of Gentiles, the farthest from the temple, and the court of the priests was closest. This large open area then, I think, is the court of the Gentiles. And I think this is where, this area out here, uh, was probably the area where the merchants uh, were selling their oxen, doves, and sheep, and also where the money changers were located. So you get a little bit of an idea of the scale of things and, and how that looked. When Jesus showed up to uh, uh, observe the Passover there in Jerusalem. So now, what about these money changers? What's their... I mean, it's not just... When we went to uh, the Holy Land in 79... We got to, I, the only thing I remember, I mean, there was different currencies everywhere you went, but the only time I remember uh, having it pointed out specifically was when we were in Jordan in the hotel there, they had a signboard out in the lobby, and it showed what the daily exchange rate was, and that changed every day. Well, sometimes it didn't change, but it could change every day depending on what the exchange rate was between various other foreign currencies and the local currency. So that's not exactly what was going on here. There was a particular coin that was required to pay the temple tax. To pay the temple tax, you had to use a particular coin. Most of the people coming to sacrifice and worship wouldn't have that coin. And so the money changers could provide that coin for a fee, of course. And they often raised exchange rates to exorbitant levels during times of greatest activity, like the Passover. Jesus doesn't mention that here. John doesn't mention that here. We don't know if that was part of the issue, but they did do that. Historically, we know. And while it looks very open and clean in this artist's conception of Herod's temple, remember what Jesus showed, found when he showed up. Picture most of this area filled with oxen, sheep, and doves. The oxen and sheep kind of loosely pinned there or perhaps just kept near their owners. The doves would have been in cages, you know, uh, there stacked up probably. And, and along with all the sounds and smells that would go along with their presence. That's what Jesus found. When he came into the temple area that day. Okay? Let's read on in verse 15. Here we go. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen 
And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. He drove them all out. Now the Babylonian Talmud, which is one of the rabbinical commentaries on the Old Testament, said it was forbidden for anyone to carry a staff in the temple area, although it's not clear as to whether this included the people who were herding their animals there. But Jesus wouldn't have had a staff. So he made a whip or a scourge out of cords or rope. Now this is unlike the scourge that was used on Jesus before his crucifixion. That whip was designed to inflict maximum injury. Okay, D- Terrible, terrible injury. And, and Jesus, uh, Isaiah writing... 600 years before Jesus came on the scene, or 700 years before Jesus came on the scene, said, by his stripes we are healed. Talking about the marks that would be left on his back from that scourge. Now this was just a a simple whip made out of some cords or some rope. You could use it to get some animals to move. Okay, Uh, Animals had been domesticated and were obviously docile enough to stay there in the temple area. Could be herded perhaps relatively easily. Some have questioned whether Jesus used this scourge on the merchants there, and I don't think so. I mean, the owners of the large animals likely would have followed them in order not to lose them. It says that Jesus spoke to those who were selling doves, telling them to take these things away because they would have been in cages and it would have been difficult. Uh, He couldn't have just driven them out like he could drive out the sheep and the oxen. But he did. He drove them all out. And he stopped the money changers. Now, he didn't take their money. But he poured their coins out and turned their tables over. And that would make it impossible for them to do business until they had collected everything and sorted it out. You know what it's like if you've ever, you know, had your stuff all neatly organized and then it gets dumped. I've done this more times. Yeah. Anyway, it gets dumped and you've got to get it all sorted out and, and, and everything before you can start working with it again. And you might think, well, what is it that caused Jesus to react in such an extreme way that day? That question comes to my mind. I mean, sure. You know, oh man, we come to the temple and look at all these animals out here. But is that really all it is? Think about this for a minute. When Solomon was building the original temple, all the stones for the temple had to be shaped at the quarry, which was some distance from the temple. And all the wood that was used there was cut and shaped somewhere else and then brought to the temple area. 1 Kings 6 7. 1 Kings 6 7 says that this was so there would not be the sound of a hammer an axe, or any iron tool heard in the house while it was being built. They, they shaped everything off-site, prepared it off-site, brought it to the temple area and assembled it, but they shaped it all off-site. So you wouldn't hear the sound of a hammer, an axe, or any iron tool in the temple area while it was being built. Now why do you suppose they were so careful to keep those sounds away from the temple? I mean, it's not because the workers, you know, oh, we can't hear the radio. We got it. No, that wasn't it. Okay. Might be it today. Wasn't it then? No, I think at least one reason may be that they were concerned about regarding the temple area as holy and as dedicated to God, even while it was under construction. Because they had a, a reverence for God and they understood this is to be the house for God's own dwelling place. Now contrast that attitude with the attitude of, let's bring animals and tables for changing money into the temple area and see how much money we can make off the people who come to worship. Those attitudes are not at all the same. 
And don't think that the priests didn't know anything about what was going on. Uh, the generally accepted view is that they knew, not only did they know, but they were getting the percentage of the prophets. The Holy of Holies, the innermost sanctuary in the temple building itself, was designated as the actual dwelling place of God. That's what the temple was for. The temple was his holy sanctuary. Even for those who did not enter the temple building itself, there should have been proper reverence and recognition of what the temple was and what it represented and who it represented. And I think this goes a long way to explaining why Jesus was so upset that day. Certainly, the people coming for Passover, they required animals for sacrifice. Those that came from any sort of distance would find it difficult to bring their own animals all that way. That there would be merchants in Jerusalem selling animals for the purpose of sacrifice makes perfect sense. The scriptures don't tell us that Jesus objected to the activity of selling animals. He didn't even object necessarily to the activity of changing money. His objection seems to be, and I think is, about the location of these enterprises. And I think he objected to that location because he, Jesus, regarded the temple as a holy place reserved for the undivided and undistracted worship of God. And if you're in there trying to worship God and make your sacrifice, and there's all these animals out there making their noises, and all the hubbub of commerce taking place all out there, it's going to be difficult. You know, Jesus also seems a little possessive of the temple here, calling it my father's house. Well, this isn't the first time he's called it that. Back in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 50, Luke 2, 41 through 50, we have the account of when Jesus was 12 years old, and his family traveled to Jerusalem for Passover, as they did every year. They did that every year. I think Joseph uh, was probably observant, just like Jesus was observant later on. After about a day of traveling home, Mary and Joseph realized that Jesus, Jesus was not with the group of families that was traveling together. They returned to Jerusalem to look for him. So now they're two days out, because it's a day away, a day to get back. Or although they probably hurried getting back, I'm guessing. And now... It took them three days to find him once they got back to Jerusalem. That's not the big part. The big part is where they found him. Where did they find him? He was at the temple. He was listening to the teachers of the law, asking them questions and amazing them with his answers. When Mary and Joseph told Jesus about how, wor how much he had worried them, he said, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Now, some translations say about my father's business. The literal translation is more along the lines of about my father's affairs. Either way, Jesus associated the temple with his father, whom he recognized, even at 12 years old, he recognized his father was God. And so he comes to the temple and he calls it my father's house. Which brings us back to the question of why Jesus took such drastic action at the temple in John chapter 2. The, obje the objection that Jesus gave to the animal sellers and to the money changers was that they had made God's house a place of business. And Jesus saw that as being inconsistent with the purpose and character of the temple. Remember the question. It's the title of the message. It's up there on every screen that we're seeing here. Remember the question, whose temple is it? And you know, we call these other ones, we call them Solomon's Temple and Zerubbabel's Temple and Herod's Temple. They're not any of those. Okay? Whose temple is it, right? It's God's. 
And, and I think based on this, we could properly say that according to Jesus, there are some activities, and I would say attitudes, that are simply not appropriate to engage in or to display in God's house, in God's temple. Because it is His temple. Who gets to call the shots in God's temple? God, right? Well, keep that in your mind. And I'm sure Jesus' disciples were stunned at what Jesus was doing. These were adult men who, I'm guessing they'd been to Jerusalem before during Passover. They had seen the animal sellers and the money changers there in years past. We don't know what their own thoughts were about those activities. John doesn't share that. But what Jesus did in driving them all out reminded them of Psalm 69.9. Especially the part that said, Zeal for your house will consume me. I was reading a book uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, Rick gave me a book, The Lion in the White House. You ever given me that book? Yeah, about Th Teddy Roosevelt. Okay, in that book. Have you read it? No. You haven't read it? Okay. I'll have to loan it back to you so you can read it. But anyway, when Teddy Roosevelt, I was reading this book a couple weeks ago. I finally got around to it, saving it for my summer reading, right? Uh, when he was a boy, Theodore Roosevelt, President when he was a boy, he developed a fear of church temporarily based on hearing Psalm 69.9 spoken aloud one Sunday. No, or maybe out here out of, uh, uh, out of John 2, I don't know. But Teddy apparently understood zeal as seal. Uh, and in the King James, the quote reads, The zeal of thine house has eaten me up. And so what he heard was, the seal of thine house has eaten me up. And so he was afraid there was some kind of man-eating seal on the loose in the church somewhere. Didn't want to go to church after that for a while until they figured out what was going on. Yeah. Jesus' disciples properly recognized that Jesus was passionate about God and worship and all things relating to what a right relationship with God is supposed to be. Jesus was consumed with demonstrating and teaching what should be done in regard to God's house, because it is God's house. His actions, Jesus' actions, were consistent with what and who the Messiah should be. Because that verse, when it says his disciples thought of that verse, they were thinking of him as the Messiah, because that verse is about the Messiah. Go on to verse 18. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, what Jesus had done in driving out the merchants and declaring the temple to be the house of his father, that also was actually a claim on his part to be the Messiah. <laughs> Religious leaders are going to look at that and go, whoa, who do you think you are? I mean, they recognized what Jesus was saying. And so they asked Jesus to provide a sign, some kind of a testing miracle to back up that claim. Now, we don't know whether they had heard about what Jesus had done turning the water into wine at Cana in Galilee. We don't know if they'd heard about any other miracles Jesus may already have performed. But they are demanding some kind of proof that Jesus has this authority to claim the temple as his own. Because that's what my father's house, he's saying it belongs to him too. 
Well, immediately, Jesus promises a sign, though the Jews didn't understand what he meant. And Jesus didn't provide the sign immediately. The sign Jesus promised was, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the obvious and incorrect interpretation of his statement is that if the physical temple were destroyed, Jesus could rebuild it in three days' time. Later on at Jesus' trial before his crucifixion, this statement would be misquoted. And it would be claimed that Jesus said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And while Jesus certainly was capable of doing so, he never said he was going to destroy the temple. His words here in John 2.19 are almost a challenge to the Jews. And they're certainly a prediction of what will happen. The ultimate sign that Jesus would give concerning his identity and authority would come after he was crucified and buried in the tomb. His resurrection proves. I want you to hear that again. Because if it were not for the resurrection, we wouldn't have any point in being here right now. His resurrection proves that every word he spoke and every claim that he made was absolute truth. After Jesus rose from the dead, his disciples remembered the words he spoke here in John 2. And they understood then that more than three years before the event, Jesus had spoken of his death, burial, and resurrection. This is the first mention in John of these coming events. And though it may seem like an explicit reference to us, it was so subtle at the time that not even Jesus' disciples knew what he was talking about. Nevertheless, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is one of the key themes in the book of John, and we see it introduced here. He was speaking of the temple, of his body, it says. Okay, let's go on to verse 23. Still speaking about Jesus. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus was performing signs. The very last verse of John's Gospel, John chapter 21, verse 25, says this, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which, if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Now, that's probably hyperbole on John's part, but it illustrates something we might sometimes forget, so I hope we can excuse him this particular exaggeration. The record of Scripture, whether in the Gospels or elsewhere, is not an exhaustive historical account of all events within a certain time frame, even when it comes to the life of Jesus. You think about Jesus' own life, the account in the Gospels that we have of his lifetime. There are at least two large gaps. I see it more like as three uh, large gaps in the historical record of his life in the Gospels. The first one covers the time he spent in Egypt. You know, they fled. Herod wanted to kill all the babies, so Joseph was born in a dream, and they fled off to Egypt and went and lived in Egypt for a while. We don't know how long. And then when they returned, they went back and they were warned to go to Nazareth instead of returning to Bethlehem. So they went to Nazareth. And that's the second gap, the time between Egypt and when they went to Jerusalem when Jesus was 12. And then the third gap is the time between the return from Jerusalem when he was 12 and the beginning of his adult ministry, probably about 18 years later. That's, those are some large gaps. You know, the first 30 years of Jesus' life, we know very little except about his birth. We know he went to Egypt. We know he lived in Nazareth. We know he went to the temple when he was 12. That's it. That's all we know. 
Sometimes, though, we might think that the four Gospels taken together cover every event of Jesus' life from the time he was baptized by John the Baptist until he ascended into heaven after his resurrection. Like you could almost get, a, a, get your day planner out and do three and a half years of itinerary. Jesus did this on this day and he did this on this day. And of course it's not like that. John clearly informs us that there were many other things Jesus did which were not recorded. And that's okay. Because what we have is sufficient for our needs. We have everything that we need recorded here to lead us to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we need. We might want to know some of those other things, but that's what we need, and we have enough for that. Some of these other things which are not recorded are the signs that Jesus performed in Jerusalem around the Passover time mentioned here in John chapter 2. Now we could assume, I know, we shouldn't, but I don't think it would be terribly out of bounds if we did. We could assume that they were miracles of healing. Jesus did a lot of that. Okay, we don't have any recorded so far, but hey, he could have been doing that. Or miracles of provision, like the feeding of the 5,000 later on, or the turning the water into wine, which already happened. What's most important about this is that many people who saw these signs believed in the name of Jesus. That's the most important thing about it. To know the details of how many people he healed, and what kind of healings they were, and how many times he fed people. Those aren't the important things. The important thing is that those signs that he performed were sufficient to persuade people to believe in him. But then there's belief, and then there's belief. Okay? I might ask the question, what was their manner of belief in him? Did they see him as their one hope of salvation? Or did they see him as a way to escape Roman rule? Because one popular idea about the Messiah at this time that we're reading about where Jesus is doing all this... One popular idea about the Messiah at this time was that he would rise up and deliver the nation of Israel from Roman rule and reestablish Israel as a world power, like back in the days of King David. As a result, rather than submitting to Jesus' will and authority, many wanted to use him and his power to further their own agendas. If he'd been that Messiah, if he'd been the Messiah that came and says, those Romans, we're getting them out of here next week. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have this king. I'm going to be the king. And, and I'm going to rule over all this. We're going to reestablish power. We're going to have the prominent world power. The chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they all would have lined up right behind him and said, you go. You do that, we're behind you all the way. Yeah. Jesus knows how selfish and how treacherous the hearts of men can be. So it doesn't surprise us that John writes that Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. And I think it makes an important point that goes along with the question that we have asked, and we'll tie this up again a little bit more toward the end. Jesus didn't come to bow to the whims and the will of men. Not even yours or mine. He didn't come so I could tell him how it's going to be. And he didn't come so you could tell him how it's going to be either, or anybody else. When we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it means that we bow to his will and authority in every way. He has come to establish a loving, giving, sacrificial relationship with us that says, I want the very best for you, but in order for you to get that, you have to do things my way. He's the one calling the shots. 
He's the one telling us what for. In order to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it means that we bow to His will and authority in every way. You know, in many ways, this account of Jesus cleansing the temple is so much more than just a historical record. It is a statement about who Jesus is. This is my Father's house. Think about that claim, what He's saying. And being the Messiah, being the Son of God. It reveals to us things about the heart of God, what God thinks is okay and isn't okay in terms of activities and attitudes in His temple. And I hope, and I think it should, I hope it reminds us of our own responsibility and accountability for the lives that we live. I call this message, Whose Temple Is It? And you might feel like we haven't spent a whole lot of time exploring that question. I think Jesus clearly communicated that the temple belonged to God, that Jesus, as God's Son, had the authority to define what is and what is not acceptable activity in the temple. But what does that mean for you and me now? There's not even a temple in existence anymore, right? Well, let's consider this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And if you're going to read all these verses, you're going to have to turn there yourself because I'm only going to have the last two on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12, the Apostle Paul is discussing some things that need to be considered in order to determine what proper Christian conduct should be. And when you parse that statement, there's a lot in there. Proper Christian conduct. You think about all those words together and what they mean. And there were some situations in Corinth. He's addressing one particular one. I don't want you to look at this passage and say, well, he's just talking about one thing. He's not just talking about one thing. He's leading up to, using one thing as an illustration, he's leading up to a principle. Let's, let's listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. Paul writes, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Talking about physical bodies now. Now God has not only raised raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And this is the one particular instance that he's using to illustrate his point here. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. If you have the King James, it'll say, God forbid there. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Now see, that's the specific example that Paul uses to illustrate this point. Verses 19 and 20 of 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price? Therefore, glorify God in your body. And here's the application. All of us who are Christians must confront this reality. Like the Holy of Holies in the temple was the dwelling place of God. 
Our bodies, as Christians, our bodies are the dwelling place of God the Holy Spirit. Just as Jesus, God's Son, had the right to define what was appropriate or inappropriate conduct at the temple building, as your Lord and Savior, He has the authority to define what is appropriate or inappropriate conduct for you in your life. I heard it put this way once, and it sounds funny, but it isn't. Instead of treating your body like your own personal amusement park, acknowledge and act on the reality that you are not your own. You have been bought with a price, the priceless, precious blood of Jesus Christ. And as a result, your responsibility is to glorify God in your body in all ways at all times. If you're not a Christian today, I would invite you to consider the many that believed in Jesus' name because of the signs he performed. Think about that for a minute. They were there, on site, face-to-face, seeing Jesus, doing what he was doing, and they believed in his name. Maybe not always with the purest motives, maybe not always with the correct response or, or the right outcome, but they believed. And if they could do that, having been there and seen him in person, is Jesus worth your consideration to believe in him as Lord and Savior, as Messiah? If you are so moved to believe in Jesus today, know that accepting him means doing so on his terms, accepting his authority in your life, and letting him define what your life will be like from now on. And if you're still at that point where you say, I don't know if I'm going to become a Christian or not, you have the option of not following Jesus. But you need to ask yourself, where will that ultimately lead? You have that option, but where will that ultimately lead? Is eternity in hell worth living your life however you please today? Your body can be the temple of the Holy Spirit. You can have all the eternal blessings and benefits that are yours if Jesus is truly your Lord and Savior. And so I would ask, would you submit to his authority today? Your body becomes.